people would be like, oh, do you get to talk to the athletes? It's like, no, you have to talk to the athletes. Even people who've always known they've wanted to be writers may find out that life can throw them a curveball. Sports writer turned mystery novelist Brad Parks, Dartmouth 96, touches base with us about how he's grown as a person and as a writer. Find out how reading the writing on the wall and writing what you know may just get you to your plan B on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. So I'm here with my friend Brad today, and I won't say he's one of my oldest friends because we're not (laughs) old, but he's one of my earliest Dartmouth friends, having met the week before we started classes. And I think I could answer some of these questions for you, but I would love to hear your answers to who was Brad Parks when he got to Dartmouth? Oh my God, Leslie. Well, you'll you'll remember because he was pretty clueless, pretty sheltered. He had lived in this little town in Ridgefield, Connecticut, where there were only white people and there were only certain ways of thinking. He hadn't seen a lot of the world, frankly, and he hadn't experienced many other different types of people. Uh, he had not had his mind open to uh, probably most of Western liberalized thought. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, God, I think about that kid and I, I, I feel like I barely know him, but he had definitely lived a pretty sheltered existence and Dartmouth was eye-opening in a lot of ways. And how and when did that shell start to crack open? I I definitely know by Ed 20, our junior year, <laughs> it had definitely done that. But tell me kind of the process for you. I don't, gosh, I've, I've never even thought about it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's that thing that happens one dorm room pizza conversation at a time. You know, where suddenly you find yourself living on a floor where like one guy's from Germany and somebody else is from Florida. You know, like I I had a roommate who had who had never seen snow before and a roommate who was this like lacrosse guy from Pennsylvania. I I don't know. It was just like I I still remember like literally the first time I ever met a gay person was or at least that I knew it was we were at a dance in Collis. And this friend of mine said to me, I'm going to dance with Jim now. And he was a male friend. It's like, well, what, you, Jim? You're dancing, but but you're, oh, oh, I get it. You know, and that's freshman year in college. And like, I seriously, I had never met somebody who had been openly gay before. You know, so it's it's a thousand experiences like that. And then it's also, you know, that intellectual journey you're on at the time, where you get the the luxury of being just so focused on your own learning and on having your mind opened in so many ways. And, you know, and whether that was like a random intellectual tangent into the literature of Japan or the history of science or, you know, whatever it was to to be able to luxuriate in that. Uh, I think that was all part of what opened me up to, uh, I don't know, starting to become actually a fully evolved human being, because I definitely was not when I arrived on the Dartmouth (laughs) campus. (laughs) You weren't so bad, Ron. So when you were dabbling in all things liberal arts in the classroom, you also were dabbling with a lot of extracurriculars, but you, um, maybe you knew this was your calling already, but you found your calling in journalism. um, And really, we didn't have much except kind of our standard, the Dartmouth and some other publications. So you took it upon yourself to build something. Tell me about that. Yeah. So actually, the, you know, the journalism that really did 
when I realized that was my calling, was at Dartmouth, because I, ha- I had written sports for my local hometown paper, covering high school sports for the weekly paper. And then I got to Dartmouth and I started covering Dartmouth sports. And I found it really exciting that suddenly I was covering Division One athletics. Now, you know, Dartmouth doesn't compare to Ohio State, but it was certainly a bigger deal than Ridgefield High School. And I kind of liked that. And I liked that kind of spotlight of it. And, uh, you know, the, you had got people coming from all over the place to play their sports who had really been quite excellent in their areas. I mean, these were all stars of their high schools who were coming to Dartmouth and whatnot. So I started covering sports for uh, basically anybody who would let me write for them. Uh, you know, I would write for the D. I would write for the Valley News. I would write for the Manchester Union Leader. Uh, I would even cover Dartmouth uh, football games for the New York Times because the New York Times Sunday deadlines at that point were so early they couldn't wait for the Associated Press story. So they hired this like little army of stringers to cover Ivy League sports because wow. back then the New York Times was very big into we cover Ivy League sports, of course. Um, so I, you know, I just I found all of that amazing. But yeah, as, as time went along, I kind of got um, dissatisfied by the way that the D covered sports because the D, like, they always had this like little tiny edition on Mondays. Well, all Ivy League sports basically happen <laughs> the on the weekend. weekends. Yeah. And so when you suddenly only have half a page for sports on a Monday, you're still covering the weekend sports on like Wednesday and Thursday. And I, I don't know, I just found that kind of dissatisfied. So yes, uh, our junior year in the fall of 1994, I started my own weekly sports newspaper in my dorm room. Uh, I've always been very good with names, so I called it the Sports Weekly. <laughs> yeah, I'm good that so way. Creative. And and so yeah, so that was like my final two years of Dartmouth was every Monday morning. Well, I would I would basically I would spend all weekend putting the paper together, and then every Monday morning I would drive down to Claremont, New Hampshire, and get the paper printed at the Claremont Eagle, and then drive back to campus in my 1987 Ford Thunderbird. Uh, it golden. was old then. It yes. feels really old now. <laughs> yeah, I would come on campus and distribute it all over the place, and then move on. And I still, 24 and a half years later, have stress dreams where <laughs> it's suddenly like a Sunday night and I realized I haven't put anything in the sports weekly yet. And oh, oh my God. God, what am I going to do? <laughs> I think we've all had those college dreams, but exactly. maybe not about the sports <laughs> weekly. Oh, that's funny. So then I would just remember kind of funny. We were talking about um, those dorm room pizzas. Um, I remember you and I stayed to sing with our singing group, the Dodecaphonics, and uh, we were singing commencement reunions. And I just remember being on the floor of the Choats talking about what was next. And Mm. you were already, and I think that was between junior and senior year, you were already like, well, I'm going to run a newspaper and I'm just, I'm going to write. And you did write, you didn't, um, run a newspaper right away because you went to one that was a little too big for you to run right away. <laughs> um, so talk about your leap after Dartmouth. Yeah. So I had done internships while at Dartmouth uh, at the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. And then this was so long ago, the Washington Post was actually hiring at that point in time. And so I managed to, the the fall after our senior year, so fall of 1996, get hired by the Washington Post because they were actually expanding, you know, because, you know, suburban Washington was sprawling outward and uh, they were finding that they needed reporters in these further flung counties. So I got hired full time and was sent to the Manassas, Virginia Bureau of the Washington Post. 
um, which was in Prince William County. And I'll always remember when I, I got kind of a, a really critical perspective on exactly where I ranked in, in the pecking order of the Washington Post, because while I was there, Kathleen Graham passed away. And Kathleen Graham was the, the longtime owner and publisher of the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And David Remnick wrote an appreciation about her in The New Yorker. Well, David Remnick had once upon a time been the Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post. And he talked about the the pressure when Catherine Graham came to visit of he knew if he screwed anything up while Catherine Graham was visiting, he was going to be sent to Prince William County to cover high school sports. And I'm like, wait a second. What? Who did I piss off? What am I doing in Prince William County covering high school sports? But that's where I was. I was, you know. Well, like, that doesn't make me feel any better because I grew up in the county even farther away <laughs> from the district. Uh, yes. So that's great. And uh, so, like, I would be like, you know, going off to cover a high school field hockey game or something like that. And the the inter office. So this is the, you know during the Clinton White House and 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 we were impeaching Bill Clinton. And you get these like frantic messages on the inter office message system that the Post had at the time that would flash across the top of your screen. Does anyone have Jennifer Flowers' phone number? <laughs> you know, so they're like, they're bringing down a president and I'm covering high school field hockey. Here right, I am. Right, right. So I left there in 1998 to go to a slightly smaller newspaper, but to have a much bigger job. I was going to the Newark Star Ledger in New Jersey, which is the largest paper in New Jersey and was like the 14th largest paper in the country. So it was a little bit of a step down from the post, but I was getting to cover major professional sports. I was uh, basically a sports feature writer. So it was kind of my dream job, but at a smaller newspaper. Like my thinking was like, I knew that that job at the Star Ledger would really allow me to stretch my legs. Would I would be doing much bigger mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. I would be doing investigative stuff. I would be doing features. And that in the long term, that would serve me a lot better and give me a lot more experience than covering a high school field hockey game again for a very large paper. Well, and you were, I was living vicariously through you because you were there with Tiger Woods, like during the height of the good Tiger years and like all these crazy things that you're like, wow. Yeah. So I would, I would like Um, go and cover the masters uh, and, you know, he would win the masters and, you know, he would be pictured in people magazine or something like that. And you could always see me like blurry in the background somewhere. (laughs) It was like, it was the strangest (laughs) type of fame because it was only fame if you knew me already, you know, or like there would be like, you know, people would be like, yeah, I saw you on CBS. It's like, great. As one of 50,000 people in the horde following Tiger. So yes, it was, it was crushing fame. For about six years there, I, I like did the entire bucket list of sports that you could ever want to cover. The Masters, the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Olympics. I mean, you name it, I covered it. And it was great. And I was, I was in my 20s and I was spending 120 nights a year in a hotel room and I was single and great, great, great. It was wonderful. But then, you know, this, this funny thing happened at the end of my 20s. Uh, and that was that I wasn't single anymore. I had married this wonderful, wonderful woman that I had met at Dartmouth, Melissa Taylor, class of 96. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, settling down and starting a family and all this kind of stuff. And um, I'll, I'll always remember I was, uh, I was walking out of the Sky Dome one night uh, in Toronto and I had been covering a Yankees game and I was with the Daily News beat writer. Uh, and we were just talking like, hey, what's up with you? What's up with you? But, you know, we'd filed our stories. It's one o'clock in the morning. And he says, oh, yeah, my uh, my kid started kindergarten today. And I was like, 
but mm-hmm. you're in Toronto. What it what you know? And it was like one of those those moments where mm-hmm. I just realized this isn't what I want to do forever. Like I don't want it to be that when we have a family yeah. and my kid says, "Mommy, where's Daddy?" She has to pull out her pocket schedule and be like, "Well, um, he's he's going from <laughs> okay. San Antonio to Houston, and then once he's done in Dallas, he'll come home to see us." You know. So I, and I think there were, there were a lot of other things going on in terms of like leaving, wanting to leave sports. I mean, because here it was in some ways this dream job uh, until you actually did it. And then, you know, I think yeah. like a lot of jobs we discovered that are that way. It's like people would be like, oh, do you get to talk to the athletes? It's like, no, you have to talk to the athletes. Because by the way, some of the athletes are good people. Don't get me wrong. But some of these people are real jerks. You know, like they did not get put mm-hmm. in the place they are because they were really superhuman beings. They got put there because they're really good at hitting a baseball. Um, and and right. I think I would I would I would sit there like at night after I'd filed my story and I would think like what what am I doing with my life? You know, like that that ultimately yeah. the, this thing called sports. And at that point, I I was over the glamour. I was over the glitz. I was over the 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 cheerleaders and the fireworks and all that other kind of stuff. And I, I started looking at the the harder side of things like, OK, so there I was in Newark, New Jersey, this very poor city. Right. And Newark, New Jersey, at one point got this three hundred million dollar windfall from the Port Authority. And what did they do with it? Well, with schools that had leaking roofs and an overstressed police department and all this other these crushing needs, they built a hockey arena. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. And, and I am part of this thing called sports, even though I can say, oh, I'm there to ask the tough questions. I, I'm there to hold a mirror. I'm there to do good journalism, whatever. Now, at a certain point in time, about 90% of what I write is, yay, we won, boo, we lost. And, and I'm part of the machinery that is hyping and glorifying this mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that just shows, Brad, that you actually did become a fully involved <laughs> I person. Well, you know, the other thing was, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going into Newark, New Jersey a lot, um, pretty much every day. Yeah. And so I was starting to see, so that I think was really, it, Dartmouth started my education and Newark completed it or, or, or really furthered it. I mean, I, I don't think we ever complete our educations, of course, but like, you know, uh, there I am going into the city that, you know, by however, whatever metrics you want to use is, is one of the sickest, most violent cities in the nation. It has struggled for a long time and really understanding those struggles and, and really getting to know the people um, as well. Uh, was, was right. I think what really kind of opened up my mind, because, you know, there I am this, Dartmouth guy from the mean streets of Ridgefield, Connecticut and Hanover, New Hampshire. And there I am suddenly on a front stoop talking with an African-American great grandmother of 30 who, you know, she grew up in Mississippi. Her family did nothing but pick cotton. And she came up to Newark with her family during the Great Migration. And by the way, her family has been in America for 20 generations and has never owned a stick of property. You know, like that's an eye-opening experience because, okay, not only both because of how different we are, but also because of how similar we are. Because you you end up talking to that person for two, three hours, and you find that God, really, and it's a cliche, but it's true. Like people are the same everywhere. Yeah. So you were able to make within yes. the Star Ledger, you were able to make a switch from straight sports journalism to broader journalism and covered the city of Newark um, and even, you know, even its history with the race riots, you had some wonderful stories there. And then Hurricane Mm. Katrina happened and 
I know you went down there and reported from there because you came back, you know, almost, you know, still sodden from that experience yes. to be in my wedding. By the way, yeah, um, thanks, thanks for giving me an and, excuse to leave a New Orleans. That was the only thing that was getting me out of New Orleans, by the way. I'm like, I, I got to go be the best man at my friend's wedding. I got to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> and that was that was really a, a rich part of your further right. evolution, not only as a person, but as a writer. There came a time, though, when journalism was not what mm. it used to be. And I, I remember you grappling with what your next steps were going to be. Um, so can you talk about that pivot. This the show is a lot about right. you know when we pivot, and one would see you as well. He's always been a writer, but there there were some times, and you know, going out of sports was one. But then you had another. Yeah, big well, one. and I would have told you on on graduation day, I will never be anything but a journalist. You know, like this is this is in my mm. blood. It's my calling. It's what I'm meant to do. And I'd had all these experiences that led me to believe that. And then, yeah, while I'm I'm covering news like Hurricane Katrina or, uh, you know, like any of these. I mean, I, I was also a little bit of a news reporter during 9-11 because there were no sports happening whatsoever. And, you know, every story I covered further reinforced that, like, yes, this is journalism is what I'm meant to be. But I started realizing that even though I thought I would always be there for journalism, journalism wasn't always going to be there for me. Salaries had been frozen in 2004. There was a hiring freeze. There were all kinds of budget cuts. Uh, so along about 2007, I went to the executive <laughs> editor and I said, hey, look, boss, I, I haven't had a salary increase in three years and we've just had a baby. Could you give me another 50 bucks a week? And he said, I'd love to, but I can't. And it was one of those moments where it's like, my God, what am I doing here? Because you could, you know, by that part, you could you could read the writing on the wall. Like I'd always, or not always, but probably, you know, by the early 2000s, like I knew, okay, I'm only going to be able to ride this dinosaur for so long. But I thought I would be able to ride it to retirement. Or, or actually, what I originally thought was that I would get burned out on journalism eventually. Because I saw the pace of it, and daily journalism is brutal. And that, you know, by the time I was in my late 50s, you know, I would have somehow paid for my children to go to college and and that I would just retire to a cottage somewhere and I would write mystery novels. Like that was my idea of my semi-retirement career. I thought this would be wonderful. And then here I am suddenly in my early 30s <laughs> contemplating my semi-retirement career. So our nuclear option was my wife got a job at a boarding school and we were we sold our house in New Jersey. I quit my job as a journalist. And I was going to bang out novels until one sold, you know, jump rather than be pushed. And a, a funny thing happened on the way to the nuclear option. And that is I had actually already written a novel uh, and I had an agent at that point who had been shopping the novel, but I hadn't heard anything in six months. And I just assumed it was dead and not going anywhere. Well, about two weeks before the moving vans arrived to take us from New Jersey to Virginia, I got a call from that agent. And she said, Hey, remember that novel you wrote? I'm like, yeah. She said, I just sold it to St. Martin's press for a two book contract and it's going to come out in hardcover. Should I say yes? It's like, yes, please say yes. <laughs> uh, and so I was already quitting my job to become an author. And um, somehow in the middle of that, you really was an you author anymore. Already. Yeah. But of course <laughs> the adventure was just beginning at that point. <laughs> yeah. So you're this award-winning, multiple award-winning mystery thriller author. And your first series started with a journalist at its core. Yes. yes. So as I was core protagonist of so drawing from your background, right. uh, which, you know, people, people think I, I did that 
uh, you know, because I'm so egotistical and vainglorious, um, which is true. But the the real truth of the matter is I was writing at six o'clock in the morning before I went to work as a journalist. And I needed to write something that wouldn't require any research. And so the only thing I right, could do now. was write about a journalist in Newark, New Jersey, who was writing about crime because that's what I was doing. Um, so that was, yeah, that was that first book that, you know, the reason I had a book in the back pocket, as it were, when I decided to become a novelist is because I had already sort of been doing that. And then suddenly your agent signs you to a two book contract and she says, so you, you have another book, right? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. I have another one. Sure. Uh, and that is how a six book series gets born basically. <laughs> but now you're doing right. more standalone work and you're still drawing from some of the kind of rich kind of research that you had to do as a newspaper journalist in drawing from court situations or gun running across state lines. All kinds of things happen in these novels that are just awesome. Where where does that well continue to draw from? How do you how do you still keep this fresh? You know, book I think book? the isn't that something that Dartmouth teaches you? That really you don't know anything at all, but you've learned how to learn stuff. And and that's why I, I, I remain a, a huge evangelist for a liberal arts education, because I, I look at what has happened over the last <coughs> quarter century and how much the world has changed and at a breakneck pace that only gets faster. And how had I, say, gone to journalism school oh my God, anything I had been taught in journalism school would be so outmoded by now. Thank God I didn't go to mm. journalism school. But but Dartmouth, and then to a certain extent working in a newspaper too, just taught me I can learn about anything. So, I mean, I think that answers a lot of kind of the, the what element of your Dartmouth days do you see in mm. what you're doing now? Um, certainly the liberal arts, keeping a um, mind open to all those things, the you know Japanese literature or whatever. But I guess getting back to like who you were and you definitely said you evolved over your four years at Dartmouth, but you know, if you had to tell oh. your younger self or those yeah, I... now in your Dartmouth shoes, what you might've left the college with that could have given you some good armor for the years to come, what would you have said? So I think if I can pat myself on the back, part of it I did, and that is focus on your long-term development. Find find the jobs and find the places that give you the best skills. And that, you know, in my case, I was just trying to become the best writer I could be. And I felt like if I did that, eventually I would find a way to be able to to market that and to to be able to make a living off of it. Uh, and so I, I looked for those opportunities. So like, I mean, even even before I left Dartmouth. Um, I, I had the opportunity, and, and you know, it's one of those those great dilemmas that that Dartmouth students, if they're lucky, get. Uh, I was offered internships at both the Boston Globe and Sports Illustrated, and you know, Sports Illustrated was obviously the much more glamorous name, but the Boston Globe was going to let me be a general assignment sports reporter for the summer. And at Sports Illustrated, I would be a fact checker. And I just thought that like, mm -hmm. okay, being a reporter actually out there doing it, especially for a kid who didn't come from journalism school, had you know, had never really been in a newsroom, like that would be a more important experience. And so I think I just, uh, yeah, I always look for how can I expand my skill set as much as possible, even if I don't understand exactly how those skills are going to be applicable. So I don't know, like, I, I think probably what I would more tell myself is... Not don't be afraid to fail, 
but hey kid you're gonna fail a lot <laughs> i mean we we haven't even talked about all the wrong turns leslie that i took on the way like there was a point in time leslie where my greatest dream in the world was to be a sports columnist right? Like, cause that was like the yeah, biggest job yeah. you could hope for. And I had been building toward it. And someday I'm going to be a columnist because all the writers I admire were columnists. And I, I went through like a two year audition process to try to become the columnist at the paper where I was working. And at the end, they gave the job to my best friend instead, mm. which good for mm -hmm. him. He's a great columnist. He's gone on to win awards. He's done wonderfully. And frankly, and, good for you. I was about to say, that yes, was not in the cards, that right? was kind of what directly led to me leaving sports and becoming a news side guy. I felt like I had done everything in sports I wanted to do and let me explore something new. So like, yeah, that failure, which felt awful at the time, I mean, unspeakably awful, you know, ended up being the most important move I could have made. Because by the way, my first assignment as a news side reporter was a quadruple homicide. It was uh, four people left for dead in a vacant lot in the south part of Newark. Do you know the plot of my first ever published novel? <laughs> yes, you do. do. It is a I newspaper do. reporter sent to cover a quadruple <laughs> homicide, four people left for dead in a vacant lot in the south part of Newark. Um, so, you know, you never know how these like these disappointments, these crushing disappointments end up being wonderful opportunities. So the, the other thing that's totally contradictory because I can't even do it now, I, I would have told myself to relax and enjoy it a little more. Like I, I think I, I, and I remain, and this is why like, I can't give my younger self this advice because I can't even take this advice now, but like see that this is a, a, a long journey and that it's gonna end up okay somehow. Right. Like, because I think if you're frankly, most of us who were type A enough to get into Dartmouth in the first place and have that drive and have that that kind of need to succeed and that whatever that we we kind of all have. If you keep applying that to whatever you're doing in life, you're going to do OK. You know, and maybe even if it's not the greatest success you could ever want it's going to be good enough. You're going to be able to feed yourself. And I, I think that was like, there There were times when I, I really worried about like, oh my God, how am I ever possibly going to support my family? Um, and so maybe that worry is a good thing, but but like, you know what? You'll you'll find a way to support your family. You'll, you'll figure something out. Yeah. And there'll be another yeah. pivot and you know that it'll feel, it might feel bad or it might feel scary or it might feel awkward. And yet it's going to put you on a good well, road. Well, and yeah, just maybe and, not the and one even you were within thinking, my right? my author career, I've had to pivot a number of times. You know, I had mm -hmm. I had six books in a series, but at a certain point, a series kind of either takes on an atmosphere and an oxygen of its own, or it doesn't, and it's time to move on. And after six books, it was like mm -hmm. the series wasn't progressing like my publisher wanted it to, frankly. So I had to do something else. And that something else ended up being the standalone novel, Say Nothing, that ended up getting translated into 15 languages. So, hey, that's pretty good. But then even that publisher. So I, I did three books with that publisher. And then, you know, the, the vagaries of your career take another twist. And suddenly the people who signed me at that publisher have all left. And I find myself without an editor, without a champion there. And what am I going to do now? And actually, we're, we're, we're in the middle of that next pivot now. So I'm trying to yeah take my vice and be relaxed and enjoy the ride.
but I suck at taking that advice because I'm pretty uptight about it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But the nice thing is, even when all those things feel unknown and unsure, there is some stability. You have a wonderful family, two kids who my kids consider (laughs) their cousins and and friends, Dartmouth friends that remain forever. So um, thanks so much, Brad, for talking me through your twists and turns. I knew most of them, but it's always fun to kind of hear and replay like where, where people were and to know that you came out on the bright side of all of those turns. So thanks Great again. Thanks, Leslie. That was Brad Parks, author of the award-winning thrillers Faces of the Gone, Say Nothing, and the new Interference. Find him at bradparksbooks.com. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, with another friend on the next episode of Roads Taken. Roads Taken.